Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest on West Coast Live has been a newspaper columnist and novelist. She has a new novel out called The Believers. Her other books include, in, uh, in England, it was called Notes on a Scandal. In this country, it was called What Was She Thinking? Notes on a Scandal, which was made into a film with Kate Winslet and Judy Dench. And her new book is set in New York. It involves a, uh, of a very progressive left-wing family. She herself came from a family that was in uh, New York. Her, uh, her father was a screenwriter. He wrote uh, The Dirty Dozen script. The other one was Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. <laughs> Will you please welcome Zoe Heller to West Coast Live. How do you do? A very funny, sly, moving novel. Nobody gets off easily in this book. And no, it, they don't. Um, can I begin by correcting something? Oh, please. I love being corrected. I didn't grow up in New York, as you can tell from my... You were born in London. Uh, yeah, and I, I grew up in London. Right. I'm a, a quite a late transplant. But you live there now. I do, yeah. for the last 15 years or so. Yeah. Well, that's kind of growing up. Oh. No, no, yeah, I don't know. No, Thank you. Right. No, no, no. You're right. But you were, you were a columnist for British newspapers while you were living in New York, and the pressure of doing a column, trying to capture the insanity and nanity marvels of New York, must have been exhausting. A weekly column. A weekly column. <laughs> so it's a very little stress, actually. <laughs> but you had to keep your mind going every day. Uh, no, in fact, what I did was... You didn't keep your mind going every day. <laughs> no, I, I, I did, but I, I, the, the writing the column was a way of financing writing a novel. And it was actually, um, m you know, a substantial amount of money for not very much work. Um, I sometimes wonder why I, I ever gave it up, because really I, I took a sort of afternoon, every Thursday afternoon, the cry went out, what am I going to write about? And I would phone my friends and say, you know, anything interesting happened to you this week? <laughs> um, and I would write it, and the rest of the time I was at least meant to be writing a novel. But part of the, uh, for instance, one of the columns was about how you got into an argument with somebody in the street, shrieking, and then, and then somebody uh, came by, a famous writer you knew at a party who'd only seen you talking very mildly and so forth. Yes, I can't remember that one. I wrote them for an awfully long time, so I can't remember the details of each one. Uh, yeah, well, what happened was, because I was um, not particularly good at writing a column, I would fall back on describing the minutiae of what I had done that week, which was, it ended up being a problem because it was quite an exposing column. I wrote for English newspapers, and I was living in the States, so I didn't have a sense of how, uh, how much um, exposing I was doing. But when I would return to London, I remember turning up in London after, you know, a couple of years of being in New York and going up to a bank teller and her leaning across saying, are you Zoe Heller? And me saying, yes. How did you know? And she went, I've been reading your column. How's your boyfriend? And thinking, oh, feeling sort of completely unreasonably affronted, you know, that actually there was, here was this person who knew quite a lot about my life. I had no one to blame but myself. I had been telling her about my life. Um, but it became apparent that um, if I carried on doing it, I would alienate everyone around me because, of course, I was giving away their secrets too. Um, so, and in the end, I... I I stopped being a single person and had children, and my life became uh, rather more tame and uninteresting. Um, and so I think even if I wanted to do the column now, no one would be very much interested in paying me to do it. Well, I, uh, 
I thought of your character, Audrey, when I, when I saw this column about you getting into a screaming match. I know you probably don't remember this. Uh, in, in, uh, uh, because she's a, she's a screamer, but she starts out as a very demure uh, young English girl at 20 when we first see her in the book. And by the end, uh, she has qualities of, of, of monstrousness about her uh, and is willing to scream and yell at anybody particularly when her, uh, her husband is in the hospital incapacitated by a stroke, if anybody crosses her, if her daughter wants to become Jewish or, you know, or, or become a practicing Jew. Right. Um, I mean, that character, where did, where did Audrey come from? Well, when I really want to frighten people, I say, well, c'est moi, Audrey, c'est moi. <laughs> um, uh, I guess it, one of the fun things about writing about someone like Audrey is that she is... Uh, uh, a way of expressing all the things one thinks but generally doesn't say in life. Um, you mentioned that right in the beginning you see her as a young person. Part of the reason I chose to write a prologue that's set in 1962 before I move forward um, and spend the rest of the book in 2002, 40 years later, is because I know I'm going to write about a woman who is, to all intents and purposes, rather monstrous. I wanted to show my reader the vulnerable young person this monster once was. Um, and my feeling is that some of that vulnerability and social anxiety is still lurking um, beneath or behind the monstrous facade. Um, you know, I'm often, one, one of the questions that has arisen, particularly with this book, but has arisen with all three novels I've written, is, you know, why do you write unlikable characters? Well. I hope that if that um, a reader will recognize she is monstrous, but actually um, at, at least feel some sympathy for her plight. I'm quite interested in, I think all of us have experienced this at some point in our lives, knowing that we are behaving monstrously and wanting to stop. We've sort of painted ourselves into a corner of very bad behavior, but we can't quite find a way of saving ourselves, of sort of stepping down from our awful performance with some dignity. I think that's very much her, her problem. The, uh, she isn't totally unlikable, though. I uh, hope not. No, no, I hope not. No. And she's, uh, she's put under a lot of uh, extraordinary stress, but part of it also is she's attached herself to a great man, a great progressive lawyer who takes on all the great causes of the 60s, 70s, 80s, yeah. is renowned throughout New York, and, and she's there trying to raise... Uh, trying to raise her family, all of which in some way is kind of out of her control. Yes, one of the things I was interested in writing about was um, how difficult it is to be the wife, the helpmeet, the amanuensis of a great man. I remember as a, as a quite small child um, being, I don't know, you know, something my parents were having at dinner and observing um, a couple, the, the man being someone rather grand and charismatic and, um, and somebody who made everybody laugh, and looking at the wife and thinking, that must be quite tough. Um, and so it's obviously um, a lifelong interest of mine. I think to be the spouse of um, the joker or, or the great charismatic person is, um, is quite a cross to bear. And it certainly is a cross for her. Um, he is, among other things, um, apart from being rather a narcissistic person, he's also a serial adulterer. Um, so I hope people can feel some empathy 
for her situation. But it was very funny, I did an online book club um, where a bunch of people were sent uh, early copies of the book. And um, it's wonderful for me because the book club, you know, buys lots of my books. <laughs> my part of the bargain is I go online with the people, the book club and talk about the book for two weeks. And to a, well, actually not to a man, to a woman, because it was all women, um, they all said, you know, she's awful and we hate her and we have no sympathy for her. So I did my spiel about how it's very hard being married to a great man. And, uh, and they said, well, she's made her bed and she better lie in it. So I said, okay. <laughs> and that was that. So I think that will be some people's response. One of the strange and interesting things about writing a book is people read it in very different ways. And you have to sort of um, let your book go and be interpreted as it will. Very early on, uh, Joel, the husband, is incapacitated by uh, a stroke. And one of the regrets that, that Audrey has is that one of his last requests to her was, was to, to, uh, uh, to make love. Uh, and she declined because there was a new Noam Chomsky book that she wanted to read. And she regrets it. I mean, throughout this, this book in which there's this uh, pathos, there's also this hilarious sort of commentary, by the way. Uh, I mean, everything is very funny throughout despite the horrible things that go on. Um, yes, I hope it is a, a comic novel. Um, I, I very much hope it makes people laugh. Otherwise, I've really failed. I yeah. want it to be funny. Well, I mean, and there's a point at which, you know, when, when uh, Mother Audrey is, is confronted, I think it, it's, and you'll correct me on this, I, don't know, it, I think it's by the, one of the daughters, uh, it says, well, what if, what if when you find something that's the truth uh, and it changes, everything that you have believed. And she says, uh, I just won't accept it. I mean, she's, you know, and, and that's something that happens, uh, it's, it's one of the sub-debates of, of people who have a faith in something, whether it's Judaism or Islam or the progressive cause, if they're confronted, or the fidelity of a spouse, if they're confronted with opposing evidence, they have a choice of accepting it and changing or not changing. Absolutely, and I think that is, you know, you've rather beautifully, um, uh, precede what this book is really about. Um, it's it's a book about belief and about the ways in which um, believers have a very elaborate system of defenses for uh, fending off any new information that might that threatens to contradict what they believe in. Um, Audrey says this, and people have cited this as as yet more evidence of her monstrousness and her rigidity. But it seems to me um, that all of us are guilty to some extent of, of that sort of sticking our fingers in, in our ears and saying, la, 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 when something, you know, um, I know for myself, if I'm listening, if I'm having a conversation with a Republican and the Republican says something rather brilliant and smart that contradicts what I've been saying, I don't think, ah, oh, interesting, let's, let, you know, maybe perhaps we can find new common ground. I think a little part of me dies because I think oh, it's possible a Republican has said something smart and interesting and... <laughs> Oh my God! How am I going to contradict this? Um, <laughs> there is, there is. Sounds sounds like the uh, the, the Lair News Hour in some way. <laughs> That's right. Um, there is a there's that old joke about um, the atheist who is fishing, and I can tell this joke because I am an atheist. So you, you know, he's fishing and he pulls up a stone and it says, "I do not exist." Signed, God, and he turns to his believing friend and says, "See, see, I told you so." Um, <laughs> So I think, I, I think if, uh, if we are honest, we, we all of us have, have some of that in us, that unwillingness to, 
to bend from our position, not least because we have um, invested so much of our identity in, in what we believe. Um, and the classic example of this is, of course, the communists and fellow travelers of the 1930s who had plighted their troth to the Soviet Union. And then when you know information began to trickle in about the show trials and so on, they were faced with this agonizing decision about whether to say, this thing that I, you know, this great adventure, um, turns out Uncle Joe is not the cuddly old guy we thought he was. There's that fantastic book, The God That Failed, which, um, in which people like Arthur Kersler and um, Stephen Spender talk about the, the very slow, agonizing process of sort of disavowing what they had invested so much of themselves in. Um, I, I think that's a, an incredibly moving and fascinating subject. And, it, and it's something that in small ways all of us cope with at some point in our lives. It also struck me that, that one of the subtexts of this book was you were grappling with issues that are very contemporary in Britain now. Uh, I mean, anti-Semitism has been in, endemic in Great Britain, uh, but also uh, there's a character, uh, Khaled, who, is, uh, who falls in love with one of Audrey's daughters, and he is, uh, uh, and, and you bring up the, sort of the, the issue of Islam, which is also a center of great debate in Great Britain now, and how that's affecting the culture and the, uh, at large. I mean, I wonder if these were some of your ideas that you were thinking about, or were you just focused on uh, sort of the American experience? Well, this is my first book set in America, so its concerns, I suppose, are um, by necessity largely American ones. Um, I think the thing about Khalid is um, I was quite keen to write an Arab character who was A, not a terrorist, and B, um, actually not particularly interested in politics. That, that, that He is the protagonist in the book who doesn't have any particular... Um, creed or uh, kind of theory of everything. And um, the challenge he poses for uh, the daughter, Carla, um, with whom he has an affair, is that he is, to all intents and purposes, apolitical. And she finds this, you know, ha having kind of grown up as a good lefty, um, she wonders whether it is possible to be in love with somebody who doesn't share her politics and, in fact, is not interested even, even in politics. And again, I think another thing that um, I was trying to explore in this book is the relationship between the personal and the political. I was somebody who grew up with that as a mantra that the personal is political and um, you know I rushed around telling off people because they shaved their legs and um, uh, there, there's a scene with Rosa admiring the hair floating on her legs you know in the bath you know of her legs after listen it's fascinating I was um, driving along in uh, in Toronto uh, with a very sweet guy, young guy from the publicity department at Random House in Canada, and he said, I hope you don't mind my asking. I said, well, go ahead, you could ask me anything, what? He said, do you have a problem with um, bodily hair? <laughs> and I said, well, you can't ask me everything. Well, what do you mean? And he then went on to cite chapter and verse of everywhere in the book, and there were many, many instances, apparently, in which I refer unkindly to people's <laughs> bodily hair. So it was, you know, someone's beard, um, someone's hairy legs, someone's chest hair. And I said, oh, I... I no. There's a whole scene in the mikvah about that. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Can, we, can we talk about that? Sure. Well, the, you know, there's uh, one of the things that Rosa, when she goes to a mikvah, a, a, a Jewish ritual bathhouse, um, 
she is told that just before you um, take the plunge into the mikvah, the, the lady, the kind of uh, mikvah lady who inspects you, kind of has a quick forage through your pubic hair to check that there's nothing remaining there. And that's the final straw for her. She thinks, you know, it's enough that, you know, you have to do this whole thing. Then to have an elderly lady foraging through your pubic hair, she thinks, you know, she can't really go there. Um, and so how did you answer this young man? I told him that I was married to a man who looks like Captain Haddock, who's, who's fully bearded. <laughs> and that I, don't, I certainly don't have any conscious problem with it. It may be an expression of some unconscious repulsion, but I didn't think so. You, uh, one of your columns actually re reminded me of one that Jay Rayner did recently. Uh, you did a body waxing story. Ah, yes, yes. Um, and it's funny because at the end of the year in which I, you know, I, in one particular year I won an award for column writing and I was up against a very um, f famous right-wing columnist called Richard Littlejohn in England. And when I won... It was, and I went up to get my award, he was heard loudly to say something that's actually cannot be properly repeated, but it was along the lines of, what you mean to say I lost this to a woman who talked about waxing her, what's her name? Because it was, it was a column about um, going to a beauty parlor and having my legs waxed, and them saying, um, very nice Russian woman saying, so you want... Um, do you want something else done? And me saying, well, no, I, don't. I think I'm fine, thank you very much. And you know your husband will love it. And I said, oh, I'm really, I'm, I'm fine. Not really, let me show you. So in the end, I said, okay, go ahead. And I said, I think that's probably enough. And she said, no, 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 let me tell you. This is really, this is what, you're going to write to me and thank me for this. <laughs> and what I ended up going home with was a sort of strange little kind of Hitler's moustache. <laughs> And I unveiled it, and, and my, husband, my husband said only this, yikes. <laughs> and then we never spoke about it again. And I certainly never went back and had a repeat. Um, yeah, so I, um, it may be a generational thing. I think, you know, this is something for the, for the younger generation. Because I know lots and lots of young women who, you know, spend fortunes and large amounts of their time grooming themselves in this way. But um, it was not for me. Well, I mean, this this uh, this issue of of, uh, of hirsuteness and what to do about it, you know, raises uh, issues for Rosa, who's who's wanted to go into uh, to become a, a a deeply religious Jew, even though her parents uh, are atheists, and um, uh, and she goes through these explorations, uh, and there's an interesting comment that she makes, you know, when she a rabbi is questioning her, and that she and, and he says, well, I know that. Um, uh, intellectually, you understand everything, but emotionally, you may not be there. And she says, she says, no, 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 actually, emotionally, I'm there. Intellectually, this doesn't make any sense to me. And and that's part of the crisis that she feels, I mean, and, and sort of trying to understand these sort of odd sort of controlling functions and ceremonies, and what does that have anything to do with the, the spiritual life? Yeah, I mean, one of my... Um Perhaps the biggest challenge in writing this book was to write about somebody um, who has grown up an atheist and grown up in a completely secular family who finds God. And I was anxious to uh, write about that both plausibly, credibly, and um, without being patronizing. Um, and it's, it's certainly the thing I found hardest to, to do in, in all of the book. 
um, because it is a great imaginative leap for me. Um, I, I think, yes, her idea is that, I think she finds, she's found a tribe and she's found something that's um, kind of embracing and she feels something when she is in shul and um, surrounded by people singing lovely songs. Um, but then she's faced with the, I always forget, is it 613 or 631 mitzvot? The, the, the seeds and the pomegranate? Yes, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hell of a lot of stuff that you've got to do if you're a Jew. The interesting thing, which I'd never really understood, because I had to do quite a bit of research about um, the details of uh, Jewish observance for this book, I never really understood, I'm sure this is common knowledge to most people, that um, in Judaism what you say is uh, Gentiles have, you know, have a duty to, to be decent and good. They basically have to follow the Ten Commandments. But because Jews are the chosen people, they, their, their pact with God is to do the 613 or 31, I think it's 613 things, which includes, you know, going to the mikveh every month if you're a woman, um, and an endless array of very elaborate, arcane things, you know, the things you can't do on a, a Sabbath, um, not tearing lavatory paper on a Friday night and so on, because that's work. You have a very funny sequence of events where she's gone to a house and and she can't turn off the lights but accidentally does, and so everyone then has to go to the bathroom in the dark because they can't turn the lights on. And Yeah, well, you know, um, uh, I spent a bit of time with um, a modern Orthodox family in Long Island uh, where, in fact, it was, wasn't me, it was my husband who kept turning on off and on the lights. And he was like, ah, no one's going to notice, because it was in our bedroom. I was in a complete panic. Don't, don't, don't. And we did have also the issue about whether to brush our teeth, because uh, observant Jews do not brush their teeth from you know sundown on Friday until sundown on Saturday. And um, I looked at Larry, and I was like, I got a floss. <laughs> I just, I've got a floss. I can't do it. Um, so, uh, yes, we went through those issues ourselves. The, the uh, epigram of the, the book is from the, the sort of the leftist progressive writer Antonio Gramsci, who says, the challenge of modernity is to live without illusions and without becoming disillusioned. Uh, this ties in in some way with Susan Sarandon, who you have a lot, she shows up a lot in a cameo in your book. And you also make kind of very teasing references to her. Are you guys friends? No. no. I doubt we will be after this. Um, no. No, no, you have somebody say, oh, I don't know, she looks great from here, but if you got up and saw her up close, she'd look wizened. Yes, but that's just an example of, of Audrey says that, and it's an example of her sort of bloody-mindedness right. being unpleasant, but no. Uh, it's, a, it's a very fun and, and informative and, and delightful and, and provocative book to read. The Believers, the new novel by Zoe Heller. Thank you very much for being on Westwood. Thank you. Thank, Thank you very much. This is Sedge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.